All right. Okay, so let's pick up on page 10. Characteristics of the New Testament church. So three main characteristics of the New Testament church. It was house-based, it was organic, and it was simple. And so these are kind of, uh, these are represented in kind of three main streams within uh, the modern house church movement. You have kind of the, the classical house church movement with house church networks. It emphasizes the home base. You have the organic church movement, which emphasizes the organic nature, uh, but not opposed to homes, obviously, but they're kind of more broadly defined uh, than homes. And then the simple church movement, uh, in which there's the press on kind of uh, polity and, and how we do the things within church in a more simple way in context to being organic and based out of the home. And there are three kind of different flows, and people press on one more than the other, but they're all intertied together, and they all generally uh, think uh, the same things. And again, they're usually within, backed by various theological traditions, but, um, but I agree with the form that they're pressing. And uh, like this book, I mean, it's just so clean and encouraging and you read about 20 pages and you're just like yes (laughs) i want to take light and shove it down the throat of darkness you just got so many stories of you know being in really intense situations and drug dealers he's just like and i just girded up and i told him straight to his face God loves you, and he will never stop loving you. And the drug dealer broke down crying and started a house church, you know, in his complex. And, I mean, just the, oh, it just lights your fire. So, uh, home-based. One, house churches were the base of operations, so to say, in the early church. All of the life of the body related back to the home-based meetings of believers. This form allowed them to grow rapidly without forfeiting quality of discipleship. And so in the, in the uh, three main passages in Acts where you have that it specifically say they met from house to house, all three passages are in context to rapid growth and discipling of uh, believers. So Acts 2, they uh, broke bread together from house to house and the Lord was adding to their number daily. Acts 5, uh, they met in the temple courts from house to house. In those days, the number of disciples was increasing. Acts 20, I taught publicly from house to house, and I declared that Gentiles must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord. Um, and, and a great number of them did. Page 11, all the essential functions of the early church happen in context to house churches, worship, prayer, teaching, communion, baptism, etc., all these things they did in the context of homes. And so it's, it's one of those, it's kind of absurd that you have to argue for it because there wasn't any other option. It wasn't like this battle was going on in the early church. It's just how it was for the first 200 years. Um, point three, Pentecost happened in a private home. The movement of the Spirit is not dependent on house church form, but generally a house church form grows out of those who are humble and seek the Lord. And so uh, just because you, you uh, there's so many things that 
are fostered and developed in context to a small group holding each other accountable in righteousness. And the Lord just loves to do things. You know, I, I mean, I grew up, I came to the Lord in a college ministry that was home-based. And from the day I walked into that first home meeting and uh, <laughs> this girl totally raised square in a Methodist church just looked at me and just pointed straight at me and prophesied to me, read my mail. And I was just like a total unbeliever, like what in the world, you know? And it wasn't, I don't think she was even meaning to prophesy because the ho- the house, the the home base meetings that were happening, happening were Methodist in background. So there wasn't a lot of lang- charismatic language, but God was doing stuff all the time. And so she just pointed at me and said, I just feel this, you know, that this is how God feels towards you. And do, 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 do. And I was just like, unbelievable. And the gifts of the Spirit were just flowing, you know, in a continuous manner. Those except really uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues. But it was just common practice for the gifts of the Spirit and God doing stuff. And we we're all so tightly knit together. The guy who led me to the Lord, I remember the fr- the uh, the... First time I was talking to him, we'd kind of run into each other uh, a number of times. And uh, we the first time I really talked to him, uh, we were sitting down over lunch, and he was just talking about moving in with his friends and how this was the first group of guys that he loved so much, he would die for these guys. And, you know, my friends were drug dealers, so I didn't trust anybody, like, as far as I could throw them, you know. I was just like, I was just like, what? planet are you from and you know i came into this group of people and we were we all became so close and it wasn't like we were trying to spur one another on it was just like god was real and we were taken and we had nothing else to live for and we inherently spurred one another on because we're all just our lives were consumed with seeking the lord And, you know, and we just constantly were encountering the Lord and we were telling each other about it. And we were all just like stirred up to zeal and we loved each other deeply. And we, I mean, I literally, I would have died for those guys. And I thought this was just how it was. Like, this is how we functioned. And we all kind of went to different churches on Sunday and we all knew something was terribly strange and wrong about our Sunday experience versus our weekly experience that we just kind of met together regularly. And, and, uh, and then, you know, we, uh, we all kind of dispersed and uh, most of us went to seminaries and went into the ministry. And then we started, you know, I, I went to seminary, and, and as time kind of unfolded, I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> this isn't how it is in the rest of the world. Um, anyway, so uh, I just put a number of scriptures there of uh, instances where you have uh, uh, the church meeting in homes. I don't want to belabor those because uh, it's uh, an obvious point. Four, leadership is decentralized and thus empowered in context to a house church form. Ownership of ministry, responsibilities for others, raises the, ball, raises the bar while inherently calling out and training new, uh, new leaders. So we were, I mean, I was in, it was a campus ministry, 
And that little campus ministry of 80 to 100 students pumped out like 10, 15 people a year into full-time ministry, which isn't really that much, but is pretty significant. And every, I mean, there were a multitude of others that went into full-time ministry but didn't go to seminary. But it was just like everybody was like, my whole life is Jesus. Of course I'm going to dedicate my life to the preaching of the gospel. We were all a little bit ignorant and uninformed because the leader of the group wanted to protect us. <laughs> and he didn't He didn't uh, talk about the reality of what we were going to face when we left. But uh, anyway, leaders were, were, were raised up kind of inherently in those uh, home fellowships because we all just were uh, involved in ministry all the time. Page 12b, it's organic. So it's based out of homes in the New Testament, and it's organic. Uh, the idea of the church being organic was uh, uh, first articulated by a British evangelist, T. Austin Sparks. Sparks has kind of a, uh, a cult following, if, if you know him much, but uh, he pressed on this uh, relentlessly his whole life. Um, he had kind of a little, you know, uh, uh, training uh, school where he was and uh, he lived a fairly uh, discreet life God's ways and law of fullness is that of organic life and the divine order life produces its own organisms whether it be a vegetable animal human or spiritual this means that everything comes from the inside function order and fruit issue from this law of life within it was solely on this principle that we have in the New Testament that what we have in the New Testament came into being. Organized Christianity has entirely reversed this order. Um, and I just do a, a little bit more on uh, the idea of the church as a body, as a organism, and all organisms are designed to reproduce uh, uh, organically within themselves. And so here's a quote from uh, Cole in, in uh, the Organic Church book. What we... What would it look like if churches or, uh, emerged organically like small spiritual families born out of the soil of lostness because the seed of God's kingdom was planted there? These churches could reproduce just as all living things do. We have seen churches meeting in restaurants, offices, homes, university campuses, high school facilities, and beaches. We've had churches meeting in bars, coffee houses, parks, and, and locker rooms. One of our church networks has as its purpose statement to have a church within a walking distance of every person living in Las Vegas. <clears throat> Another claims every Christian is a church planner, every home is a church, and every church building is a training center which I really like that. I mean, it just kind of summarizes. I'm not, I'm not, you know, archly opposed to having a corporate holding. I think it can be used with wisdom and extreme care and protection and zealously used for uh, the well-being of the whole and not served. Uh, so I, I like that kind of uh, statement that even corporate holdings, they can be used to equip like the whole fivefold ministry and, and leadership in general is designed to equip the body for ministry. So also corporate holdings can be used that way, but uh, I've, I've rarely seen it done. Um, <clears throat> flip over to page 13. 
Another quote by Cole that I like, I never set out to start, quote house, quote, house churches, and I'm always a little surprised when I'm considering authority on such. We do not call them house churches. Instead, we call them organic churches the, to emphasize the healthy life and natural and the natural means of reproducing that we long for. He says, we don't call them house churches because there's too much baggage, because generally house church, you know, house churches are equated with kind of angry, disgruntled, you know, nonconformists in the West. And also it kind of it kind of uh, limits the idea to just meeting in homes. He says, you know, we're 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 uh, we're parking lot churches. We're uh, beach churches. We're uh, coffee house churches. He said we even have churches that meet in pubs and, and uh, rent rooms out in restaurants. And so there's the the he says it just limits too much the idea to just call it house churches. So I like that the organic church idea. So he says we do not mandate that churches remain small and meet in homes. That would miss the point. We seek that churches be healthy and reproduce. The reason our churches tend to stay small is the dynamic, life-changing property of a band of brothers and sisters who are actively on mission together. There's an innate quality to our expression of church that causes them to want to remain small, intimate, and involved in mission. And so that's what, I mean, I was just, the Lord was so kind to me to birth me into a movement of young people that this was just the way it was. I mean, we were just so closely knit band of people who had nothing else to live for but Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel, whatever gospel that was at the time. See, um, we're all broken, don't get me wrong, but uh, C is simple. The modern church is very complex. Without a simple message, i.e. gospel of the kingdom resurrection, and without a simple ministry and form, a sojourning, witnessing house church. And so that's the point of these two classes, is just to instill a simple gospel and a simple form that can function unencumbered and unhindered by all of the issues uh, that relate to corporate holdings and and, uh, professional salaries, etc. The church engages so many models and ministries it becomes confusing uh, and, and causes complacency amongst the body. The multiplication of corporate programs and ministry actually disempowers and disenfranchises the common believer. So one last quote by Cole, the term simple church began to gain pop- popularity because we valued a simple life and following of our Lord and avoided many of the complexities of the conventional church. We started articulating this profound goal for CMA, uh, Church Multiplication Associates. We want to lower the bar of how church is done and raise the bar of what it means to be a disciple. If church is simple enough that everyone can do it and is made up of people who take up their cross and follow Jesus at any cost, the result will be churches that empower the common Christian to do uncommon works of God. When church is so complicated, its function is taken out of the hands of the common Christian and placed in the hands of a few talented professionals. This results in a passive church whose members come and act more like spectators than empowered agents of the kingdom. Um... So flip over to page 14. 
Corporate-based churches are so heavily burdened, point three, and overly entangled by paid clergy and corporate holdings that it's generally unable to effectively engage in its mission and purpose as a witness. And so I didn't get time to write out the quote, but I just want to reiterate, I know you guys have read it, but it so encouraged my heart when I read it the other day. It's just so beautiful. So when Vincent Donovan, uh, for those of you that didn't do the assignment, was there anybody? Anyway. So you guys know Vincent Donovan was a Catholic priest in, uh, in Kenya working with the Maasai people. So he says, Dear Bishop, as you know, I've been in the mission in Loliondo scarcely a year, <clears throat> etc., etc. I wonder if I could make some comments on the mission. There are four well-run, well-looked-after, expensive, non-aided schools attached to the mission. There's a small chapel. There's a hospital, extremely well-built, fairly well-attended, bringing, bringing in some mission revenue. The hospital and school take up an enormous amount of time, especially the hospital. It's a common practice for the mission car, when it is called for, to pick up sick people a distance, bring them to the hospital, etc., etc. There's also religious instruction for many schools and the government school in the village. The influence of the Catholic mission is very strong uh, to the whole area, certainly much stronger than that of any other agency, government, or otherwise. But the relationships with the Maasai people have to do with schools, hospitals, or cattle. Many of the Maasai have been helped materially by the mission, there are several instances of strong friendship, but as a whole, etc., etc. Uh, but never, almost never, is religion mentioned on any of these visits. The best way to describe in the relational interactions, the best way to describe realistically the state of the Christian mission is the number zero. As of this month in the seventh year of this mission's existence, there are no adult Maasai practicing Christians. That zero is a real number because up until this date, no Catholic child on leaving school has continued to practice his religion. There's no indication that any of the present uh, students will do so. The relationship with the Messiah, in my opinion, is a dismal, time-consuming, wearying, expensive, and materialistic. goes on. Um, Looking at these people around me, at these true pagans, I am suddenly wary of the discussions that have been going on for years in the mission circles of Europe and America. As the meaning of mission work, wary of the meetings and seminars devoted to missionary strategy, I suddenly feel the urgent need to cast aside all theories and discussions, all efforts at strategy, and simply go to these people and do the work among them for which I came to Africa. And so that's what... The whole book is just stories of simply going to where unbelievers are. He talk, uh, Cole talks about the way a church, the primary, the best tools of a church planter are the police station to figure out where the crime is in an area, the uh, to figure out the lowest income areas, the disenfranchised people. When you figure out where those people are, then you actually go to them plant churches and empower those churches to plant churches. And uh, so, uh, anyway, so I would propose cutting myself off from the schools and the hospital as far as these people are concerned, as well as socializing with them and just go and talk to them about God and the Christian message. And then you remember through the rest of the book, he's struggling with what the Christian message is. And he goes out and he has to tell them about Jesus, but he's like, what do I actually tell them, you know? There's a lot of funny things go on and all that, but uh, 
He says, I know this is a radical departure from traditional procedure, but the very fact that is it that it be considered show, so shows the state we're in. And he got away with it. Why? Because he's out in the middle of nowhere, Kenya. And it's not that much to lose in relation to the empire called the Catholic Church and the whatever, you know, $10 trillion of assets that they own. It's like, you know... I don't know that number. I just threw it out. But, it, I mean, I'm sure they own the biggest buildings in the centers of metropolitan areas. I'm sure it's somewhere around there. And so, but, I mean, it's it, it's so peripheral that he managed to get away with such a disruptive act. But, you know, just so you know, it's it's not as easy as Vincent says. So he says, would, every, would, uh, would everyone in the diocese consider the same? Oh, sorry, he goes, sorry. But, uh this is precisely what I propose to do, cutting himself off from all these activities. I know that most people say uh, it is impossible to preach the gospel directly to the Messiah. They are the hardest of all pagans, the toughest of the tough, in all their hundreds of years of existence, because they're known as the warrior tribe, uh, real ro- warrior, tri- warrior tribe in that, in that area. The toughest of tough, in all their hundreds of years of existence, they've never accepted anything from the outside. You cannot bring them the gospel without going through several preparatory preliminary stages. But I would like to try, and he actually, like you saw, established a movement among them. I want to go to the Maasai daily. I want to. I want to go to Maasai daily safaris, unencumbered with the burden of selling them our school system, begging for our children begging for their children for our schools or carrying their sick or giving them medicine. Outside of this, I have no theory, no plan, no strategy, no gimmicks, no idea of what will come. I feel rather naked. I will begin as soon as possible. Sincerely, Vincent. (laughs) It's just beautiful. All right. Um, For the driving desire of Jesus and the apostles was to produce uh, disciples that would persevere unto the day of the Lord. They did this effectively by keeping discipleship small, simple, and decentralized. Simple corporate infrastructure also allows for ease of obeying the Holy Spirit. And so I remember being at Asbury Seminary and Jackie Pullinger came to speak and it just rattled everybody's cages and I was sitting in a side room uh after lunch where she was meeting with all the leaders and professors and such and they were asking her about how she did the ministry etc and she and she looks at them and says the way we run the ministry and the infrastructure is such that in one week if the lord said shut it down we would shut it down in one week and she looked over at her assistant who was sitting next to her and she said that's right isn't it you tell them. And the girl was like, yeah, one week. And just the implicit contrast in the room was so offensive because you're sitting in a room with like $10 million a year in salaries on like a $150 million campus. I don't know if that's how, but I mean, it's fairly fancy and large. And so, I mean, it was just like shocking. But in contrast to like, you know, sometimes the Lord says, shut it down. You know, Paul's going into Asia and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit says, no, go this way. Like in Acts 16, the Spirit would not allow us to go in there. And, he, and the Lord would move by the Spirit. And so sometimes the Lord understands 
the next war that's going to happen, the next movement in history, the next phase of development in this area or that, and the Lord might say, shut it down and move over here. But when you have millions of dollars of assets at stake, it's really hard to shut it down and move over here. And when you run kind of a global empire and infrastructure, it's really hard for a group over here, you know, a group in China who knows the persecution's coming in the 50s, it's really hard for them to say, tell all the you know, infrastructure from the West, listen, we really think we should shut these churches down and move over here. It's really hard to do that. But when it's decentralized and there's only apostolic ministry to the extent of relationship, because even the organic church has turned into an organic church movement and a global network in which you have these leading figures that are, 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 expressing authority and control over people they don't know you know and it's like no just just function like paul did function and control and discipline to the people that you know and have a relationship with and and commit the others to god and just let them go and let the holy spirit lead that situation i know that's the most radical church leadership strategy on the earth, uh, but it's, uh, it's the only one that will uh, survive the day of the Lord, I promise. So, uh, advantages of the house church form. I want to move through this uh, because I want to get to the last point that uh, I feel is, is uh, most important and is stressed, uh, is, is stressed by Jesus himself, and it really is the context of understanding the eschatological context by the apostles, but the advantage of the house church form, just working through, I just worked through the charts, the various areas, worship, discipleship, evangelism, prayer, you know, and all the things that support therein. And so worship, you have, I mean, any of you who have been involved in house church movements, the problem is, is so who, who's been involved in house home, home based fellowships? Okay. So the, the problem in, in, I understand that I'm talking theory to to you guys who haven't. And the problem is, and this is sometimes the rift between house church guys that are just so like dogmatic and they're like, this is the only way. Why can't you just open your eyes and see? Because if, if you don't have any real context or any interaction, you, you don't, you, you're, once you're involved in it, you're captured by it. You can never go back. You know, and everything else is just foreign and hollow. And so, uh, anyway, but so, for example, in worship, just the intimacy and intensity of worship that happens in context to a small meeting, wherever that meeting's taken place, where everybody in the room is wholeheartedly devoting and consecrating, giving themselves to God in the situation is just unique. And, and the intensity is compounded and multiplied when everybody is engaged together in worship. Likewise, the, the product of worship is faith in the day of the Lord and the judgment to come. And we consecrate our lives in fear and trembling of the day of the Lord. And so like Hebrews 10 says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope for which, uh, for which he has promised is faithful 
And in context to the hope, don't give up meeting together, spurring one another on. Uh, moreover, uh, a house church movement kind of curbs the the uh, drive for wealth and power. And obviously, there's there's home-based movements like the G12 movement, if any of you guys know kind of the inner workings of that monster. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know if some of you guys have seen Cesar around, the guy who started it, and then it got so completely, because it started out as a pyramid scheme. He was, you know, his brother-in-law said, well, you can lead the youth group, but we don't have any money to pay you. And so he started the G12 thing to to generate a salary for himself. Not That's not the only reason, but it started out as a pyramid scheme where he took offerings and that got passed up and got passed up and it grew and exploded so fast because there was a home-based model and an engine that actually uh, that actually spurred on and fostered discipleship, but it got so totally out of control because of all the money involved and the guys at the top were making millions and millions and millions every year. And, and Cesar was like, I got to get out of this thing. This is insane. And the Holy Spirit was like, you got to get out of this thing. It's not good. <laughs> and he just kept kind of, you know, waffling around. And finally the Holy Spirit was like, no, you get out now. And he went that day and told his brother-in-law. And then it's just been relentless fury ever since. And everywhere he goes, you know, there's people that go before him and malign him. And this is probably information that doesn't need to be shared publicly. I just realized. Uh, anyway, so, uh, so uh, no, I don't know. I think Cesar, Cesar would be fine. He came, the thing that initiated it was he came to IHOP, uh, I don't remember, like 03 or whatever, and he saw, you know, a bunch of young people worshiping the Lord and loving the Lord, and all of a sudden it dawned on him. He had raised up a movement of like 10 million youth, and none of them really loved God. They were zealous to do things and preach the gospel that they didn't really love God and love people. And uh, and so that's what kind of started the whole downhill spin, and, and that's why you'll see him around here quite a bit. Uh, the Lord's just working things out in his heart. So you can, I mean, house church movements can be as tyrannical and money-based and power and reputation-based as corporate-based uh, uh, movements. They can just not have corporate holdings, but there can be still an emphasis on, on, on pride and greed, power and money. And so uh, I, don't want, I don't want to be a zealot preacher of, of house churches without context. But generally it fosters humility, humility and ordinariness of life. Anyway, so discipleship uh, is the same deal. In a small group of people, you have high accountability. And so, you know, you know people intimately, you're all running together, you're meeting together continually, and when one person starts to fall into immorality and they start to separate themselves, there's a context for lovingly going to them and restoring them in righteousness. Moreover, there's a context for actual mentoring to happen. Because what happens is the, 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 with a corporate-based form, people don't actually meet together. They don't actually live in the lives of one another. And so there's not an actual mechanism for discipleship. And so they create artificial mechanisms 
for discipleship, like the monastic movement, once you had the transition to the corporate form post-Constantine, you had the monastic movement rise up and go, this ain't right, we got to go to the wilderness to get away from this thing. And But because there wasn't a return to, there was still the corporate uh, form and holdings, they ended up instituting these, these uh these artificial discipleship mechanisms, not based primarily on relationship between a father-son type mentoring relationship between human, ba- human beings in which people are disciplined and, and pressed and encouraged to walk in righteousness, zeal, and discipline by a father figure, a mentor who actually loves them. But they're discipled by this inhuman uh, rule or set of disciplines, you know, that doesn't, that you get enforced rules on you without love or any context. And so you turn into a zealot without love the same way the people who are enforcing and discipling you outside the context of relationships are zealots without love. You see what I'm saying? And so in a house church uh, context, it fosters older people and younger people in the faith for mentoring and real relationship in which the younger generation can be disciplined and rules can be enforced on them in love. I mean, it's like me trying to disciple my sons, only I'm not really ever around, and I put the list of rules up on the wall and have somebody who, who, who an intermediary between us enforcing the rules on them who doesn't care about them. I mean, obviously my children are going to disobey and run amok. They're not going to be discipled at all because there's no healthy relational context that I enforce rules on them out of love and care and compassion. And so the same way in the church. Flip over to uh, page 17, evangelism. Home-based fellowships are far more effective in context to empowering evangelism because there's... uh, because number one, you can just talk like Paul does in, in Acts 20. I put that in there. He goes on and on until midnight. And, you know, the guy falls asleep in the window and falls out of the window and dies. And Paul raises him from the dead. The point, the point there is not so much that he raised the guy from the dead or that he fell asleep. The point is, is that he was singled out as falling asleep. So most of the people were awake as he went on and on until midnight. Because you sure can't, I mean, it's like the Chinese house church, you know, they talk about when Westerners come and they talk for 45 minutes and then they end. And it's like, well, we just got started. We're used to people, you know, after a couple hours, they're just really getting going, you know. (laughs) And so you have a context where effective teaching and evangelism can actually happen because people are engaged. That's why I can do this for hours on end. And classrooms can function as corporate-based as they are. I understand what's going on here. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I can engage your attention a whole lot more effectively than if we're in a huge auditorium or in an arena and I'm just going on for hour after hour. People totally check out. So uh, two... The house church model was assumed to be the mechanism for evangelism in the early church. This is why there's almost no emphasis on evangelism as we know it today, a specialized method in the hands of a specialized few. I just want to press this point uh, because of my own pain over the years. I used to be really zealous in 
you know, handing out tracts on, uh, on the university campus and door to door, and and uh, it just produced so little fruit. I became disillusioned with it, but I I have I still have a, an ache in my heart and a a, a burning zeal. I remember a couple of years ago. It hurt so bad in the prayer room one day, I was just crying out to the Lord. And when I came to IHOP, the Lord just really kissed me because the first three times that I was asked to teach at IHOP was by Hal Linhart. And I remember one day I was in the prayer room and I was just like, Lord, I cannot live like this. And all of a sudden I had a really clear vision and I saw, uh, I saw a pickaxe handed to me. Have I told this story yet to you guys? A pickaxe was handed to me in my vision, and I start swinging at you know the dirt, trying to pick jewels and gems out, and I became really tired and and disgruntled, and I looked over and Hal Linhart had this pickaxe, and the dude was just freaking buff, and he was just relentless, you know, going at this wall, and uh, I was just like I was just sitting there going, why can't I be like that, you know, and the Lord came over and put his arm around me and took me back into a back room that said research and development and and I was developing a jackhammer <laughs> and so so that's I mean it's really my heart to develop a a theology that actually has good news and hope and a form for the playing out of that theology obviously I can't make this happen I know the door the Lord will open the doors for that but I'm uh, this is what I'm giving to you and encouraging you that that uh, you would take these things and walk them out in the decades to come. Um, so uh, Simpson quotes, Arthur Darby Knox says that in the history of the early church, there was little, uh, if any, direct preaching to the public masses. It was simply too dangerous. The church was not not only had a message, it was the message. Because, I mean, you have preaching to the masses, masses in the book of Acts, but as a general rule in the Roman Empire for the first two centuries, there's very little of it because of the persecution and the underground nature uh, of the church. So uh, because the church in itself was good news, there was no need for proclamation-style evangelism or going door-to-door. Only when the church was a stru- as a structure became bad news, an ill-matching structure for an explosive message, did the need for special good news enterprises emerge. And this is how it was in the home fellowship groups that I was a part of. We lived our lives in classes and in our jobs while we were going to school, and we were just telling people about Jesus. And we had a context to say, hey, I meet with some friends, and, and we, we pray, and we study the Bible. You want to come meet with us? And they would come into the home fellowships and be ministered to and loved on, and we would preach, the, preach Jesus to them, and they would give their lives to the Lord. And so there was a context for the form was good news, and we reflected the 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 gospel in how we lived together, and then the 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 teaching was backed up by uh, the lifestyle. So I just wanted to relieve because I mean we all have the specialist evangelists who get up and tell us that we're just sinners and going to hell because we don't witness all the time, and I'm just like, oh, I've been down that road. Uh, Point four, the history of missions and evangelism is a history of house church movements. As a general rule, all effective missions movements into unreached areas begin as home-based movements. Only later do they incorporate and create public holdings. The history of missions has always been, effective missions into unreached places, has always been home-based. 
No missions movement into an unreached people has come in, built a building, and then asked people to come into the building while I put on a service. Never. I mean, it's been tried, but it fails miserably and continues to just wallow along in areas of Africa and other places, if you're familiar. But all missions movements are always home-based, whether they realize it or not. It's the only way into a culture. Um, Point five, in persecuted areas, house churches are the only option. The primary reason Western missionaries cannot enter persecuted areas in the 1040 window is because their unwillingness to change their corporate form. So I love this quote uh, by... uh, by Brother Yoon in uh, the Back to Jerusalem book, which is the sequel to The Heavenly Man, he says, it will not be by an army... Uh, yeah, if you guys need to roll, yeah, I understand. I, can I just, I just... We're just going over. Yeah, we're all going over to your house anyway. So. But, oh, you got to go pick it. All right, do it. So he says, it will not be an army of elephants that marches into nations like Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, and Iran with the gospel, trampling down the strongholds. Sometimes it seems as, seems as if a lot of missions effort consists of elephant plans, huge and grandiose strategies for overwhelming the devil's strongholds and making him surrender as captives. But it is easy for border guards to to detect an elephant entering the country. Instead of an army of elephants, we believe God wants to send an army of insects and crawling creatures to cause the collapse of the house of Buddha, house of Hinduism, house of Muhammad. This is how the Chinese church will operate during the Back to Jerusalem mission. We will not make much noise, but we will secretively and quietly do the Lord's work underground. We will be quite difficult to detect. You may not hear many victorious reports of church growth coming back from the Middle East or Southeast Asia. But be assured that our ants, worms, and termites are already there, quietly working away, slowly loosening the foundations of Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. You will not see any great or small church buildings resulting from our efforts because we are determined to do what the Lord has led us to do in China these last 50 years and establish spiritual fellowships of believers who meet in their homes. We won't build a single church building anywhere, but the Lord will be building up his church of living stones with Jesus as the cornerstone. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. No, I want to I want to get to the uh the es- the uh eschatological application. So I just go through their prayer everybody engages in an intimate meeting. Everybody engages. You don't have a bunch of people sitting around while a few engage on the platform like in like in our Sunday morning meetings, etc. Everybody engages when it's a group of people who all know each other in intimate fellowship. Everybody prays together. And the intensity of prayer meetings and home-based fellowships is, is uh, intense. Likewise, I talked about the fasted lifestyle. You spur one another on, like Tim Miller living with me for two months. And the intensity of that man's devotional life so like provoked me and spurred me on. I wasn't condemned in any way. I was just like, I have to seek God. And I have to do it with my family. And I have to lead my family. I'm going to do it, you know, because... Anyway, so... Uh, 19, trials and tribulations. You actually have a context where pastoring and shepherding can happen, you know, and you don't have these these abstract ministry times where people you don't know pray for you during your difficult times. It's just like, 
Oh my gosh, you know. Um, powers of the age to come, signs and wonders, and context to home fellowships when God does things. The awe and intensity when you know all the factors involved and you know everyone. And, pe- and people get healed and God miraculously provides. It so strengthens your heart and, uh, and uh, belief that God is with you and will sustain you. The fivefold ministry, likewise, you actually have a context where people can be equipped and the, the wealth and power in the situation and the tithes actually go to the widow and the orphan in the situation where the money actually goes to help people rather than to gain corporate wealth and power. All right, so I just wanted to finish with the eschatological necessity of the house church form. Absolute necessity. In the coming days, a house church form will be the only form available to believers when the, abs- when the Antichrist establishes his global dominance. The church will lose its corporate holdings and be forced to meet underground. It's just blunt truth that it's not theoretical. We believe that the earth is coming together economically, politically, ideologically under one order and regime. It's such a clear, you guys remember from the Babylon class, such a clear movement on the earth of man to consolidate control like in the Tower of Babel. And it will happen. And the only way forward is that we know how to do church without buildings, without corporate holdings. And we know how to live life together in our homes and worship and pray and break bread together, communion, baptize people in our homes, etc. B, those countries that have been privileged to endure persecution will be prepared for the end of the age. Believers in countries where the church has befriended wicked rulers will find it a very difficult transition. And so it was a difficult transition in China. But there was a movement of people from Watchman Nee that were already pressing towards that ideal. And so when the, the curtain came down, you had a group of people that could make the transition and stay alive. Uh, unfortunately, you have things like, you know, I mean, just the history of the church. The Middle East used to be the heart of Christianity. And because you had so much corporate holdings, once Islam came through in the 7th century, you just had a radical destruction and, a, and, a, and really almost an annihilation of the church. Likewise, in the Persian Empire in the late 4th century, when you had the great persecution, 100, over 100,000 Christians massacred because they were so functioned and uh, they weren't as bad at the time, um, but... Uh, all throughout uh, history, when you have tyrannical uh, regimes come down on the church, when, they have, when they're so tied to a corporate-based mentality and have so many corporate holdings to maintain, it causes widespread apostasy. They can't make the transition. And so this really is, when you study Nazi Germany, which is the Lord's gift to us to understand where this thing is going, the reason for 90% apostasy in Germany, was because the Lutheran church was the state church. And the whole Lutheran church jumped on board with with Hitler because he seduced them and sweet-talked them and promised them more money and power and more privileges. And so they they saw Hitler as, here's a man by means which we can continue to build our empire by wealth and power. And then all of a sudden he turned on them and burned them and destroyed them. 
And so you have the you really have a picture of uh, uh, where it will go. But likewise, as in Germany, you had a cleansing and purifying of the church, which which uh, the Lord has promised to do. D, in preparation for the end of the age, the reformation of the church demands a complete change of heart, theology, and praxis. If there's only a change of heart and theology, like we've seen, you know, with the Reformation, with the Pietist movement, and you don't have a change of form, and you don't actually walk it out, it breaks down and turns back on you, and you actually continue the form to reinforce the wickedness. And so like Matthew 6, this is, I mean, it's just a strange dynamic that has happened over and over do not build up for yourself wealth in this age. Do not do it. Not only individually, but corporately. Do not do it. Because the deceitfulness of the heart of man and the amount of time it takes to keep up, the pain in my heart of keeping up with the material crap that is in my life, it literally makes me crazy. How much, and the, it, the, I mean, the, I just feel. The church in the West that really seeks the Lord but continues to function with this, with all of the corporate holdings functioning and all of the power and maintaining the networks and the global this and global that. I mean, the pain in the heart of maintaining these things and the joy of the Lord when we don't have the hindrances of them. This is what the Lord is addressing. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where mouth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that's where the tension comes in. When you have all this stuff and it really is, I just feel like I'm just day in and day out, I'm like, oh, I hate it. And I, it's nothing against you, you know, Lydia, my wife, or the kids. I understand that it, you know, some level of these things, food and shelter, you, you have to deal with. But the heart has to be in a position that you don't run after them. Like Paul says in First Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into a trap and many uh, destructive things. And so it's the setting of the heart of wanting to get rich rather than despising these things that consume my time and life in God and loving God and wanting to walk with him and, and his agenda in this age. You cannot serve both God and money. And so Luke 16, the Lucan version of this, interprets it a little different. He takes that you cannot serve both God and money and, and puts it in a parable, the parable of the shrewd manager, when he says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I didn't put the whole uh, parable in, but he concludes with the master, uh, uh, whatever, commends the, the, the uh, corrupt manager because of his shrewdness. And his point is, is that you have to use wealth and resources for human beings, not to build up your own influence and power in the situation, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal, eternal dwellings. So he's talking about in the age to come, you use your wealth in this age to bless people and love people, like the disciples in the book of Acts, where they use, they 
people sold properties that were excess to them, like Barnabas, and they distributed it to the poor and the needy in their midst, so nobody was out without need. And so when Barnabas stands before the Lord, he will have a whole multitude of people that he is blessed by his generosity that will be welcomed into the age to come with him, and the friendships will be multiplied after that. So that's his point here. You use money and resources shrewdly to bless people, not to build an empire. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much at the day of the Lord. Whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with very much. And his point there is that you don't use money for people. You use money for your own wealth and ambition and power. And then he says, so if you have been, not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, in context to his exhortation to Timothy, he gives kind of a commentary, likewise commentary. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in god who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life So it's not a matter of not having or handling wealth. It's a matter of how you use that wealth to further and strengthen and bless relationships. And so, again, I'm not opposed to corporate holdings, but when people serve the corporate holding rather than the corporate holding serving the people, it's a massive difference. And generally, the corporate holding is, you know, all about the used to further the cause and, and, and further the gospel. But then when the Lord says, shut it down and sell the corporate holding, that almost never happens. Because what happens is the true motivation of the heart of the leaders gets expressed. Because why do we create non-human entities? Why do we do it? Why do we create these limited liabilities? Li- I mean, all corporations are just non-human entities. All right, we've just perfected them in the West, and all, all churches and parachurch ministries, all of them, if you ask what they are, then look at their bylaws. That tells you what they actually are. You know, you can say they're this, that, and the other, and they're to preach the gospel. No, look at their bylaws. It's a corporate entity to hold possessions. I mean, that's, you ask an IRS agent, what is a church? What is a nonprofit organization? They'll tell you exactly what it is in truth. And so we create these non-human entities to express and to centralize and mobilize our desire for power and wealth. Not always, but that's the general rule. And it gets and the the reality of it. Uh, whenever the the corporate holdings get taken away, then the reality of the human heart comes forth. I want to end with uh, Mark 10. Jesus started on this way. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Because he said, "I I do all those commandments. But Jesus didn't mention the coveting one. 
And Jesus says, one thing you lack for maturity and perfection to receive eternal life, you're serving money as well as God, and you don't hate money. And you're not shrewd with it, and you love it on the inside, and you want it, and you end up choosing money and power over people. That's his his only point there. And he walks away sad. Jesus loved him because he saw the mixture and his desire for righteousness. But he walks away sad because he couldn't sacrifice it. And then he says, 